Good morning. There's my intro. All right. <clears throat> okay, so we're going to pick back up in our study again of the larger catechism. We're going to jump uh, right back in where we left off. We're going to be in question 32. But uh, before we do that, let me open us in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for your Lord's Day, our day of worship, our day of rest, um, our day of rest from our labors. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning as we get back into our catechism and our study of it, and most importantly of your word, that we would know better who you are, and we may worship you better. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, now if you uh, remember, we spent quite a bit of time uh, defining covenant, looking at the specifics of a covenant, and taking uh, that knowledge and applying it to the covenant of works. We looked at Adam and Eve in the garden and how Adam violated that covenant with God. And uh, even though we call it the covenant of works, right, that's not to say that grace was absent, right? Uh, Adam was blessed and then he did work, right? The very creational bond between God and man was gracious in itself, right? Just to refresh our memories, we said there were several appropriate definitions for uh, a covenant, Right, but I, I particularly like O. Palmer Robertson's definition. He defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And remember, each element of that definition is important. We'll see that reappear again and again as we go through each covenant uh, throughout redemptive history. So we should be well-equipped covenant theologians at this point. Yes, this is how we read and understand redemptive history. And we will flesh this, uh, this definition out a little bit more as we go through the next uh, couple of questions uh, and, and the idea of a covenant. Uh, but if you remember, we left off in our study introducing the covenant of grace and how God has not left man in a state of sin and misery. Right now we're on question 32, so uh, let's read it together. I'll read the question. Uh, please respond with the answer in unison. How is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by him and requiring faith as the condition to interest them in him promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith with all other saving graces and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God, and as the way which He hath appointed them to salvation. Very good. Now, just so you have an idea of where we're going, uh, these next couple of questions all kind of build upon each other. This question answers how God's grace is manifested in the covenant of grace which we're going to dissect this morning. Now, knowing there are multiple covenants in Scripture, right, the, the next question asks, well, does God do it in the same way, right? And, of course, the answer is no. 34 details the Old Testament, and then 35 gets into the New, okay? So I, I only say this so you kind of have a bird's-eye view of what we're looking at here. Um, within the covenant of grace, we're going to kind of start broad and then just kind of funnel our way down, Okay, so with that in mind, let's direct our attention to the question at hand. The divines really break down the covenant of grace quite easily for us into kind of three main sections in this answer, right? Remember your semicolons. It's how you kind of break apart your, your answers 
in the catechisms. So the first part, God provides sinners a mediator, and through him, life and salvation. That's our first part. The second is that this covenant requires spirit-wrought faith and produces qualities of the Spirit. Okay, and the third is that the role, uh, it looks at the role of works in our salvation. Okay, and it's these three sections that we're going to look at in more detail this morning. So let's begin with the first, that God provides sinners a mediator and through him life and salvation. The first thing that we need to take a look at is this uh, mediator. And for this, we're going to need to turn to Genesis 3.15. If you have your Bibles, please uh, turn, with, uh, turn with me there. You're going to want to open them for this. It's helpful to look at this uh, in the text. <clears throat> this is our first introduction to the gospel and the first introduction to our mediator. In Genesis 3.15, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed, I think is a better translation, and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So from this point forward in history, we have the battle between the two seeds, okay? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But if we look at this a little more precisely, we have three different enmities, if you will, okay? In the very first part of the text, we have the serpent and the woman, Okay, we see it at the very beginning of the verse. And then in the very next part of the verse, you see the serpent seed and the woman's seed. Okay, and, and, and now this is kind of important. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit here. If I lose you, I'll try to explain it again in a, in a little bit different way. In the Hebrew, okay, both of these seeds, okay, are masculine in gender and singular in number. okay which will be very important in a minute, okay? <clears throat> However, we know that both the woman and the serpent are going to have multiple seeds, multiple offsprings, right? Between which there's going to be enmity, okay? It's being used as a collective singular, okay? So grammatically, the seed is singular, okay? But functionally, it's plural, Say that again. Grammatically, it's singular, but functionally, it's plural. Okay? I promise this is going to make more sense as we look at the next part, and you're going to see its importance. Okay? In the last part of our verse, we have this he, okay, who's going to bruise the, the serpent's head, and the serpent will in turn bruise his heel. It's this third part of the verse we need to look at a little more carefully. Who exactly is this pronoun he referring to? All right, now you need to kind of dust off your English grammar knowledge a little bit here. When you have a pronoun like this, how do you know who it refers to? All relative pronouns have an antecedent noun, right? In layman's terms, you just got to look back at what it's referring to, okay? In this case, the he refers to seed, right? Specifically the seed of the woman that we just read about, right? But we have a problem. Is the seed he... Singular, or is it plural? Because we just said that the seed to which this he is referring to is grammatically it's singular, but functionally it's plural. So let's look at both aspects of that. Now, the he, the he could potentially be plural. 
Paul actually draws on this idea of the, the he being plural with multiple persons from, from the seed being singular. He says in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The your in that verse is plural. This is the end of the letter to Rome, and so Paul is giving his farewell to the whole church. And clearly, this is a reference back to Genesis 3.15, right? Paul sees, this is, this is from Robertson in his book, uh, Christ in the Covenants. He says, Paul sees the ultimate realization of this earliest word of prophecy in the destruction of Satan under the feet of believers at the end of the age. So, in other words, God will deliver the crushed head of Satan, right, under whose feet? Believers' feet, plural. Huh, that's interesting. But let's look at the singular aspect of this. Robertson ultimately concludes, and so do I, that this he is singular. Three reasons, okay? In Hebrew, right, the he is masculine singular, okay? This he is masculine singular and would naturally refer back to the next masculine singular noun, i.e. the seed of the woman. It's the most natural grammatical construction. It just makes sense. Number two, in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek, the Greek word for seed is, you guessed it, sperma. Okay? Not hard to figure out where we get our words. Anyway, sperma is a neuter word, okay, and it would have naturally followed the pronoun it. So the text would have read, it will bruise your head and you will bruise its heel. But the writers didn't do that. Okay? They kept it. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, if your first thought is, well, yeah, but they, are, they, they knew about Christ. So they, they knew how the text should have been translated. The Septuagint was written about 200 years B.C. Okay. Lastly, and this, this is my favorite reason, Moses pictures the hero of the gospel in how he frames this verse. God starts off by telling Satan that there's going to be enmity between you and the woman, but it's not going to stop there. Okay, it's going to expand between all of your offspring and all of her offspring. Okay, and then I'm going to bring it back down to just one singular seed between the both of you. We see Satan's seed narrow down to the singular, so it would naturally correspond that the seed of the woman would also be singular. He, the singular seed of the woman, will champion the cause of God against Satan. One hero will descend from the woman to join the spiritual warfare that has now been declared. And it is warfare. It's one thing to be at enmity, right? But now we have language of conquering in battle. There's bruising, crushing, right? Whereas Satan only attacks the heel, inflicting a, a partial wound. The seed of the woman inflicts a mortal blow upon his head. Now, for Old Testament believers, it would have stopped right there, right? But this side of the cross, we can definitively answer that question. Who is this seed of the woman? And I, I hope we all know that answer, but just to be sure, let's flip to Galatians 3. Now, earlier we read in Romans 16, right, that Paul understood the, the singular seed referring to, to multiple persons. If any of you are tempted to doubt Paul's theological prowess, Rest assured, Paul understood the context of Genesis 3.15. Okay, let's read Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring or seed. 
It does not to say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Yes, Paul understood the function of a collective singular noun, but he also recognized the importance of its singular meaning. Okay, only in Christ would the promised blessing come. The fulfillment of the Old Testament promises come through one seed, and it's Jesus Christ. So why did I drag you through the small, laborious details of all those Old Testament texts? For this reason, because Paul places a high level of importance and confidence in those small details. And so must we. Because the grace of God is manifested by providing a mediator. And who is that mediator? 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. The promised seed. The one from the beginning who will crush the head of the serpent. Who will destroy Satan. Who has destroyed Satan. Satan bruised Jesus through his suffering on the cross, but Christ defeated him through his death and resurrection. I like what it says in Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay. So, we have identified our mediator accurately through redemptive history, and in future questions we are going to address quite thoroughly the hypostatic union, uh, Christ's role as prophet, priest, and king, all the, all the details and the roles and responsibilities that Christ has as a mediator. I don't want to do that right now. Um, we've been reading through chapter 8 of our confession in the evening uh, worship, so you should have a nice idea already of, of kind of what that looks like. But we're going to address that more again in future questions. But for now, we just need to know that the mediator is indeed Jesus Christ. But who is the mediator for? Well, the catechism answers that, right? Sinners. Within the covenant of grace, we have two parties, God and the sinner. God does all the providing, and he sets the terms. Remember, a covenant is sovereignly administered, right? And in, the, in this case, we learn that the mediator is provided by God, and in this case, it's God himself, to the sinner. Sinners require Christ as their mediator because There is no way to the Father but through Him. But who specifically are the sinners? Well, I think think it's appropriate here to mention two categories. One being all sinners. In one sense, we can speak of the free offer of the gospel here. Okay? This covenant of grace is available to all. Okay? There's, There's no qualifier. All sinners may enter. Notice I didn't say all sinners can enter. Let's be clear, if you are unrepentant and you do not believe in Jesus, then you are outside of the covenant of grace and you do not have a mediator. Okay, but this covenant is made for sinners. Look at the catechism answer again. This covenant offers to sinners a mediator. Think of uh, Paul in Acts 17, right, when he's at the uh, Areopagus in, in Athens. He's, he's on one of the biggest social platforms in, in ancient uh, in the ancient world. And what does he say? He says, uh, he says, yeah, can I get all the elect to come forward? Please, anybody with a special mark? I need to share something real special with you real quick. No, of course he doesn't say that, right? He stands boldly. He preaches to the whole crowd. 
Acts 17, chapter 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's preaching faith and repentance in Christ. Right? He's freely offering the mediator between God and man to all people. The point here is that Jesus is available to all sinners who would repent and believe in him. And what is the response of those people, by the way? You've got three categories. Some repent and believe right away. Some say, okay, I'll listen a little bit further. And some think he's crazy. They walk away. Right? <clears throat> okay, now let's talk about the second category of sinners. The elect. Specifically, in the context of covenant, the sinners for whom Christ mediates are God's elect people. God enters into loving covenant relationship with his people. No one else. Jesus Christ is the mediator for all those whom the Father has predestined before the foundation of the world. He has come in redemptive history to save his people and serve as their intercessor before God. John 10, uh, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I, I lay down my life for the sheep. Christ does not die for the goats. Right? He does not die for the whole world. He dies for his people, his sheep. The death of Christ actually accomplishes something, not just the possibility of it. All right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, and this is, this is one of my favorite Bible verses, especially to share the gospel with somebody. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, this is, this is the double imputation, right? We give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness, and consequently through Christ, believers experience God's covenantal grace in two other ways, life and salvation. The Catechism also rightly mentions life and salvation. Let's take a look at the first one. When we speak of life, we're speaking of life eternal. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, right? And I'm sure most of you know this, but just as a point of clarification on this verse, we need to say this. This does not mean that Jesus died for the whole world, right? Nor does it mean that God, his love was just so overflowing with just sappy emotionalism, right? That he sent Christ to die for mankind. It's not what this means. Rather, and, and you could see this a little bit better in the Greek, that God demonstrates his love for us, his people, in this way. That he sends his son to die. Okay? God shows his love in this manner. He sends his son. And who does he send his son for? Right? Well, John uses that Greek word cosmos, world, in something like ten different ways in his gospel. Okay? So as good exegetes, you can't just simply presumptively assign what we think the word world should mean here. Quite, sim you know, quite simply, if Christ died for the sins of the whole world, then that would include the sin of unbelief and everyone would be saved. Right? Well, we know that's not true. Now, the word world here is referring to any who would repent and believe, right? i.e. both Jews and Greeks. But at the end of the day, that would only consist of his sheep, as we've mentioned. 
Okay, back to our study of the life of Christ. <clears throat> we will study later how when we die, our souls immediately depart and go to be with the Lord until that awesome day of judgment when we're given new bodies, right? At no point does the Christian actually die because of Christ's completed work. Christ says it here in John, we will have eternal life. It's, it's funny, I've seen so many movies where the, the plot of the movie is for the person to try to figure out how to be immortal, right? But if immortality existed in this sinful world, I don't know how anyone could bear that. Christ says our time in this world is fleeting, but your eternal home will be filled with abundant and immeasurable joy. Blessings that you can't imagine. No more sin, no more pain, no more grief, no more sorrow. You'll be able to stand in the presence of the Lord in His full glory. <clears throat> and the wonderful thing about this covenant, the covenant of grace, is that we get a taste of that now. <clears throat> but do you, do you know that? Do you know the joy of the Lord that comes from the promise of eternal life and being in a relationship with Christ? And I'm not talking about happiness that's fleeting, that's here one day and gone the next. I'm talking about a gladness of heart that comes from knowing God. Where you make the joy of the Lord your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 I'm talking about abiding in Christ and being filled with the Spirit. It's that personal relationship with Christ. Now and for all time, we get to delight in God's presence as the Lord shows himself strong and able to save his people. The story of salvation began in Genesis, and it continues with us today. And that brings us to our next point, salvation. Okay? Now, there's, there's four things I want us to take away from this point on salvation. Just as with eternal life, okay, salvation is freely given of God. <clears throat> John 1, verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, so we are adopted into God's family and granted salvation through saving faith by what? John lists three things in his text here, right? Not of blood, Okay, so not because your parents were Christians, right? Nor of the will of the flesh. So not because you know a lot of theology and you study really hard, right? So, i.e. not of works, right? Nor of the will of man, right? Not because other people really want it for you. Not because your parents really want you to be Christians. It is God and God alone who gives believers the right to salvation and adoption into his covenant family, into this covenant of grace. We can do nothing to will ourselves to God. We can only plead upon his mercy that he would look upon wretched sinners like us for the sake of his son and forgive us. But Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who would draw near to God through him since he is since he always lives to make intercession for them. And we can never grow weary of hearing these great truths. We can never be reminded 
too often how much God has done to save us. And that brings me to our next point. I want us to see how long salvation has been in the works. We need to always be thinking of salvation in terms of of three parts, past, present, and future. Okay, first let's examine its past context. Now, please, and you're probably going to hear me say this a couple different times, never think that the Garden of Eden was plan A, Adam screwed it up, and God had to scramble at the last minute to come up with plan B. Okay, and, and sending Jesus to the cross and the whole covenant of grace thing was just the next best thing. Okay, because the, the covenant of works just didn't work out. Okay, that line of thinking would be a huge mistake. <clears throat> now, the coming of Christ was the plan before the world was even created. Okay, and this, I'm of course talking about the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is the mutual commitment between each member of the Godhead within the triune God before the foundation of the world, to save a people for himself. Okay? Each member of the Godhead will play a different role, they'll have different responsibilities, but this way of salvation was always the plan from the very beginning. Let's read, um, we're going to read a little bit longer text, but let's read Ephesians, actually, can I get a, can I get a volunteer for this? Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 14. Thank you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, through the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Thank you. <clears throat> so, in terms of salvation past, <clears throat> look back at verse, uh, was it four? Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Right? This means that the Father chose Christians, chose the elect, chose believers in the Son, And this took place in eternity past. For all eternity, this was the plan of salvation. We are all following the will of the Father. And that includes, by the way, the Son and the Spirit, right? The other two members of the Godhead. 
We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. But when we are talking about the covenant of redemption, the Son and the, Spirit, and the Spirit both submit to the will of the Father. Look at verse 5. In love, He, the Father, predestined us for adoptions as Son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So according to whose will? The Father's will. The Son and the Spirit both submit to the Father's will. Right? And they do it lovingly, willingly. Right? <clears throat> Jesus says, and this, this is John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Foreshadowing salvation in the future, by the way. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day day. Salvation through Christ has always been the plan. Okay? The Father will choose, and He predestines a people in love. And the Son will submit to the will of the Father, humble Himself and become man, and secure the salvation of the elect by His life, death, and resurrection. And the Spirit, in accordance with the covenant, will be sent as a gift to work in your heart, to convict you of your sin, give you the gift of faith, and according to Ephesians 1.14, he seals with you the promise of salvation and is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And why? Why does God do this? Look at the end of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Now there's a lot more that can be said about the covenant of redemption in these verses, but this, this is the big bird's eye view picture. Right? In order to have a holistic view of salvation, we need to understand the covenant of redemption. Okay? The work of our salvation has been God's plan all along. And he has promised to himself in this covenant and to us to see it through. Okay, now, we've exegeted this text a bit. I want to mention two things briefly. In anything we just read... Did you see the words covenant of redemption? No. Right? That's because it's not there. It's not anywhere in Scripture. Okay? But just like the word Trinity, right? Just because it's not there, just because you don't see the word, doesn't mean the doctrine is not taught. Doesn't mean it's not true. And you're going to hear that argument. Okay? And it's Bologna. Okay? Or Bologna if you're French. Okay? Now, you will also hear some try to argue that, that, that this is not a covenant. Okay? That, yeah, sure, there's an agreement there. I, I can see that, but it's not covenantal. It's not covenant. Okay? <clears throat> As we've already discussed, there's quite a few, few valid definitions for covenant. And it, it can be a, kind of a tricky term to accurately define. But nevertheless, even if we use Robertson's definition, okay, a bond in blood sovereignly administered, right? This, this is without a doubt a binding agreement within the Godhead. This is a bond. Okay? And it is sovereignly administered because it is God himself who sets the terms. And he is every party within the covenant. Now, the bond and blood aspect is a little bit trickier because God will not shed his blood for breaking this covenant, right? But we cannot discount the bloody work of Christ at the cross, right? The covenant of redemption did indeed require Blood, in fact, blood of one of the covenant members, right? 
All of that to say this is indeed a covenant. Okay, now, let's turn our attention to salvation in the present. <clears throat> now, I want to compare uh, two things here. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. He then says in 1 Corinthians 15.1 uh, and 2, sorry. <clears throat> now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word i preached to you unless you believed in vain so we have these two different ideas here right one of which you you are saved and one of which you are being saved so which is it paul are we saved or are we being saved yes okay <clears throat> it's a both and well how can that be well, let's take a look because there's some important distinctions. Let's start with the, the first one, how we, we are currently saved. Fully, totally. Just as we read in Ephesians, Paul says if you, if you have faith in Christ, if you, are, if you are a repentant believer, you are at this moment in time fully saved. He makes the same argument in Romans 10.10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Now, if, if you were listening carefully to that one, that verse really helps us clarify what Paul's saying. At a moment in your past, you professed faith in Christ and you were justified. In that moment, you were saved. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Done. It's over. You're saved. You're justified. Boom. So believers can unequivocally say, yes, I am saved. Because God has pardoned my sin and imputed Christ's righteousness to me. But there's another side of this coin. Right? You are being saved. He said that in 1 Corinthians 15. He also tells us in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Well, what do we do? What do we do with this? What do we do with these these kinds of verses? Does this mean Christ does most of the work, and then we got to kind of pitch in on the tail end? No, not even a little bit, right? <clears throat> At this point in our walk with the Lord, the penalty of sin is not the problem. The penalty of sin is not the problem. That's been paid for. We have been clothed in the pure vestments of Christ and redeemed. However, we, like the Corinthians, right, still needs admonition. Right? We need correction. We still struggle with sin. We struggle with the power and the temptation of sin in our lives. Our being saved is our sanctification. Our putting sin to death and being transformed more and more into the image of God. When Paul tells the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's not preaching salvation by works. Right? He's telling them not to be content with past glories right? and to demonstrate their faith as they nurture their relationship with God. God's justice is, is certainly a cause for, for sober living, right? for, for fear and trembling. But we don't earn God's love or our salvation through works, right? rather through God's enabling grace. And for our love for Him, 
which we're going to touch on more of this in detail in a little bit, we work hard at living Christian lives. When Paul says salvation here, he's talking about the blessings and the experience a godly life has to offer. We too must continue to refine our lives and work out our own salvation in that sense. Okay? So yes, in one sense, we are being saved. We are being saved from the power and presence of sin in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. But there's one last form of salvation we need to mention, our future salvation. Okay? Now, in the, the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, this would be our glorification. Okay? This is what the covenant of redemption was ultimately all about. God calling a people to himself, saving them, and glorifying them. That, he, that us, uh, as his people, would be able to dwell with him and worship him. And that comes to completion in our glorification. We, the church, are a love gift from the Father to the Son. <clears throat> and when Christ returns and the judgment is over, the wheat and the chaff have been separated, we have received new bodies, our sin nature is no more, right? And at last we are in our true home, the new heavens and the new earth. This is that point. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Skip down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is our future salvation, already secured in Christ. The seed of the woman, God's champion from Genesis 3.15, has won. He accomplished all he set out to do. Now, before we move forward in our catechism answer, and we'll, we'll, finish, we'll wrap up with this, <clears throat> I feel the need to point out that the opposite is true. Right? And it may not be obvious to some. If everything we've said up to this point is true, right, then those who do not trust in Christ by faith do not have a mediator between God and man, right? They do not receive eternal life and salvation. They are outside of the covenant of grace. Quite terrifyingly, they receive the opposite of the covenant blessings. 
Without Jesus as their mediator, they must face God alone on Judgment Day where no man can stand in his courts. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. All that awaits the unbeliever is death and an eternity experiencing the full wrath of a holy God. As most of us know, Scripture pictures it as an unquenchable fire. Right? It will be a truly awful thing to behold. But with that, we're going to move into the next part of our answer, how the covenant requires spirit-wrought faith and produces the qualities of the spirit. I think that's about time for this morning. Uh, does anybody have any questions up to this point? Very good. Okay, let me close this in prayer, and then we will get ready for some fellowship and worship. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Sunday school hour. We thank you, indeed, that from eternity past, your plan was to save a people for yourself. We thank you for this covenant of grace, how simple it is that we can come to you simply by faith in your Son, who has saved us, who has redeemed us. We thank you for his intercession as he sits at your right hand. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we fellowship and come into worship with you, Lord, as you have called us to do. We pray for Pastor Miller as he brings your word to us, Lord, as he feeds your people and applies it to our hearts. We pray that we would be open and willing to receive it this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.